five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the second episode of Season 5 of the Space Economy Podcast. My returning guest today is Jeffrey Mamber, President, International and Space Stations at Voyager Space and Chairman of Nanoracks. It's been a year since Jeff was last on the show, and what a year it's been for him and the company. Voyager Space, an up-and-coming player in the space industry, acquired a majority stake in Exo Markets and its largest subsidiary, Nanoracks, earlier this year. And just last week, a team led by Nanoracks was selected in the first phase of NASA's commercial Low Earth Orbit Development Program for commercial space station concepts. Two other proposals were selected, including Northrop Grumman and the Orbital Reef Team led by Blue Origin and Sierra Space. They are joined by Axiom Space, which received a grant earlier in 2020. Listen in. Welcome back, Jeff, to the Space Economy Podcast. It's the third time that you've been on, all around um, Thanksgiving. <laughs> and so it's like we're keeping up a new tradition. There you go. Third time's a charm. Not that the yeah. other two weren't bad. And, and the last time, which was November last year, was uh, um, uh, we talked about the uh, Starlab uh, Space Farming Center, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, but so much has gone on in the last year, so we're only going to touch on a little bit of that because there was some really big news last week. But let's just get set the stage for, for the audience here. So um, with last week's big announcement uh, that, NanoRacks, that a NanoRacks-led team that includes Voyager Space and Lockheed Martin was getting a $160 million contract in early-stage funding, for the Starlab space station from NASA's commercial low Earth orbit development program, I think we need to start a discussion with how you got to this point, because it seems to me uh, it also shows the path forward. Because you had hinted at some of this stuff in in our previous podcast, and and so I, I want to go back to 2016, and you will set the record straight here. Uh, in 2016, Nanosac received a Next Step Two contract. And that was for the uh, space habitat concept. At the time, it was called Ixion. Is that correct? Yes, we rapidly uh, got rid of that to become just outpost. Yes. <laughs> so going back to 2016, was that really the beginning of what would become the NanoRacks outpost, outpost and then lead to the Starlab idea? Um, two, they were first, first uh, great, great uh, intro into this whole fascinating subject, uh, Mark. But it consider it two different pathways to the promised land. And so the reason I took on Nanorax was understanding that we had to move beyond government owned and operated space stations. And so first you had to take the steps. You had to understand how you work with NASA, how you work in LEO, how you build up an ecosystem. And what I got, I got a lot right. But what I got wrong was I thought we'd be at this point maybe three, four years ago. Uh, and the government's just moved slower than I, than I would have liked and I anticipated, uh, in part because the ISS is aging and we have to be ready to make sure there's no space station gap. So I was, I was thwarted from the ability, from, from getting NASA approval or go ahead 
on a next generation uh, space station in LEO because NASA wasn't ready. What that leaves us with is the repurposed upper stages. Those are the future. Repurposed upper stages is the future for commercial space stations, but not over the next five years. That's a decade away. As we look at the second generation of private commercial space stations, many of those will be repurposed upper stages, reused in space hardware. We're just not there yet. And so I've been gui I was guiding Nanorax for being one of the logical uh, companies to take on the responsibility for what do we do after ISS. And we've gotten this award to allow us to go ahead with the on the ground manufacture with our friends at Lockheed. Okay. And so we're going to see outposts and then we're going to, actually, are we gonna see the Star Lab first before an outpost or well, are we actually gonna see an outpost first? We'll, we'll have outposts in space as tech demo. So if, if, yeah. um, if uh, we'll see outposts in space first, but those will be tech demos. Okay, and right. then, but the, in terms of operational, Star Lab will be operational, our launch is 2027. And we're just not there technically to have human rated repurposed upper stages at this time. All right, so before we actually get into what was announced last week and Star Lab itself, uh, I just wanna talk about a little bit of the last year because well, there's been a lot that's gone on with NanoRacks and you personally, so, you know, let, let's talk about the relationship with Voyager Space. When we last talked on this podcast, um, it was before you had actually signed the deal with Voyager Space, but I think you had hinted at it. So um, earlier this year, Voyager Space completed the majority stake acquisition of Exo Markets and uh, Nanoracks, which was a subsidiary. How will being part of the larger Voyager Space team affect what Nanoracks can't believe I'm messing that word up today, can do going forward. And what was being part of Voyager space, a and was being part of Voyager space, a major contributing factor in getting the contract last week? Ah, great questions. First off, uh, the reason uh, a, a year ago, a little over a year ago, we were seeking additional capital to do a series B. And then some folks began approaching us saying, would you consider being bought out? And you know, uh, I began to give a thought because I went to our, what were then current government customers and potential. And I really started to think it through because Nanoracks had been unable to really break through on a prime level. You know, we were small. And, and I said to the government people, if I was to be part of a larger group, would that help us get this, you know, longer term business, these larger uh, projects? And they said, of course, Jeffrey, you know, Jeff, we, we really respect you. But if you get hit by the proverbial bus or Jeff, you know, how do we know in three, four years you're going to be here? And so I went to my colleagues and to the board at uh, Nanorax and said, you know, I, I think it's time we need to consider going um, with a larger organization uh, so that we can meet the needs of customers five years from now, 10 years from now. And there's no question or less of a question whether we'll be here or not. So that's the first part as to why I did a, a tender and exited the company. One of the reasons I stepped down as CEO of Nanorax um, is because I realized I was very confident, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment, that we were gonna get one of these opportunities on private space stations. 
and now they're accessed to grow considerably. And I don't really have the talent uh, for how you grow and run a company of three, 400 people. And I don't particularly wish to, okay? And uh, it's not my forte. Um, and so I understood we need a different sort of person to lead. I'm delighted with Amala Wilson. We have that CEO to take Nanorax, to take my baby to the next level. You, the second part of your question, if, if I may, was how important was it that uh, to have um, Voyager to win uh, this opportunity with Starlab for the world's first commercial free flyer. It is a, incredibly important. First, for the reasons I just said, the government has NASA's confidence that Nanorax will be here in the years to come. But secondly, Voyager is also very strong at raising capital. I will be honest with you, I don't know how to raise hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and uh, I've been working with Voyager even the last two weeks. Uh, we're already up in New York right now. Uh, talking to uh, to folks about raising capital. We have JP Morgan as our banker. Uh, and so Voyager was extremely important to send the message to NASA that we understand we're very grateful for this award of 160 million. We're very grateful for the stamp of approval from NASA. Uh, but at the same time, we have to find the customers. We know how to do that. We have to raise the capital. Voyager knows how to do that. So it was a very good team and very important. You know, it's interesting, um, earlier today, uh, Voyager Space got an award from Space News for patient capital, right? For the way they were building the company instead of going through a SPOC. And uh, it's interesting, when at NanoRax, how, before you started to expand in this deal, how many people did you have? Uh, Full-time, a little over 100. Yeah, very interesting because one of the quotes that was in the article from Dylan Taylor, CEO of, um, uh, of Voyager Space, was that a lot of companies have a problem once they get to that hundred yeah. or so employee mark, taking it to the next level. Yes. And so Voyager Space is bringing in these companies that have potential but need some help to get to that next level. And then of course, you know, marry all the pieces together. And so, uh, that's exactly NanoRacks. Right, and I'll correct you on, uh, correct's too strong a word, but I'll edit one word you said sure. there. And that is, uh, you said Dylan and Voyager are taking companies that have potential. A little different. They're taking companies that have shown their ability already. They, they, they have cash flow, they have revenue, they have customers, but, and then the rest of it, I would say, is correct. Right. How do you take it? You know, in our business, to have potential means you have a view graph. Sure. And, and you have a, a, a good website. So, um, and, and, lots of those. Yeah, <laughs> lots of those. And, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, what, what Voyager's business model is a very, uh, um, it is patient. And it's one of the reasons, again, that I, I went with Voyager. Uh, another reason I went with Voyager, I think your, your, your audience would like, is that, you know, Dylan is a believer. Uh, he's a, he's a, a, a fan of Gerard O'Neill the American uh, space visionary who uh, believed in space uh, colonies. Uh, and it was Gerard O'Neill who sent me to Moscow, my second or third time, uh, to look at seeing if we could get a, a commercial launch contract for his high frontier. And soon after he passed away, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, Dylan is a believer, he's patient, and he understands that space exploration, commercial space is a step-by-step -step process. And I echo that, I appreciate that, so. I stand corrected, uh, and a good correction it was. Um, all right, so 
let's talk about Starlab. Uh, so rather than having me describe it, what is Starlab and what is your team's vision for it? So Starlab is, uh, uh, will be the world's first commercial free flyer. It's scheduled for launch in 2027 on one mission. Okay, and we have not yet selected the launch vehicle. That's what we'll be doing over the next year. And the core components are, first off, our manufacturer, uh, lead manufacturer is Lockheed. Uh, we chose Lockheed because of its uh, extraordinary heritage in space, and also because they've invested considerable amounts of expertise, times, and funding into developing inflatable technology. So um, this, uh, this is very important to us because not only is inflatable technology, inflatable uh, modules lightweight and great for LEO, but it's also how we're gonna get to Mars one day. So it's a great investment. So Starlab is um, inflatable, core is an inflatable uh, crude or, or habitat. It will have a metallic platform as well. And we'll be talking to people all over the world as with Lockheed as to who the uh, vendor might be for that. Uh, and so you'll have the inflatable technology, you'll have the uh, habitat, you'll have the uh, metallic, it can house four people uh, uh, permanently. And uh, the core of it, the core of, um, uh, of Starlab is our business model the, uh, as a science park, the George Washington Carver Science Park. And we expect and we plan for Starlab to be focused on research, ag tech research, uh, biopharma, uh, in-space manufacturing. We can do uh, media branding. We can do tourism, but we believe strongly that the future for this nation, for this, for the, for us as a people at this time, should not be dependent on tourism per se. We've got to move forward at long last with realizing advances in the unique environment of space uh, that can better for pharmaceutical drugs, in-space manufacturing, thin films, ag tech with new crops. Um, so we see this as, as uh, we see this as the chance to finally realize the NASA dream of having breakthroughs in space. So sort of a long answer, and I went hardware to business model. Yeah, and the business model is really important. I just wanna do one comparison spec for our, um, for the audience. In terms of the volume of the space station itself where the astronauts will be working, how does that compare to the volume of workspace they have on the ISS right now? Well, it's incredible. Uh, when I realized this, I, I almost couldn't believe it. So the volume is equal to one third that of the International Space Station, but in terms of payload capability, uh, it's equal to the International Space Station. So the, the work areas are equal to the International Space Station. We just have less bathrooms, we have less redundancy and certain things. And, and so um, it's uh, NASA's giving up very little in that sense, and uh, they're gaining a lot in a new generation of uh, hardware and commercial efficiencies. I think that's really important to understand is, is that how much volume there actually is. And as you said, you, you're going to launch this on everything in one launch. Yeah, yep. So yep. this goes to the inflatable technology. How, how, how far advanced are we in, in this technology? Is, is, do you see inflatable technology as something that, that is, is, is going to be there that more companies are going to use? Yeah, I mean, it has all the advantages you want. It's just as strong, it's just as resilient, 
and yet it's lighter. And even with costs going down for transportation, you still want to be as light as possible. It offers a lot of advantages, uh, certainly as we look to going to Mars one day. It, it really is a technology we want to understand. My, my, my personal belief is that in the, few, in the next decade, we'll see a combination of using inflatables that are manufactured on the ground, along with repurposed hardware metallic structures from in space. And so that will be the future of how, of how we uh, construct larger and larger uh, uh, platforms in space. Now, is, is Starlab designed to be modular? Uh, can you add on to it or uh, is it what it is? And if you need some more uh, space, you'll send up another Starlab or some, uh, some of the robotic outposts. I, I'm going to slightly answer the question in a different way, not as right. an engineer, but as a uh, business person. Right. And the answer is, I don't believe we want to add more because with all due respect to the ISS, what we have learned is you don't want modules attached where maybe you have honeymooners next to government scientists or someone on a bicycle exercising next to thin film uh, manufacturing. So speaking as someone who has spent their career on building up uh, uh, utilization in, in, uh, on space stations, what we want is a core section, which we have here with a volume equal to the International Space Station in terms of utilization. And if you want more, if we get a customer who wants thin film research or fiber optics, I believe it will be next to and not connected. And so what we see more likely and the better way to go is a village rather than just building up the house on the hill. All right. Now, in terms of the uh, George Washington Carver Science Park, um, you know, uh, how are you going to uh, leverage uh, what you've already done on the space station? Are you going to, and, and also, I suppose I'll throw in with this, uh, the Bishop Airlock. I mean, you've built up a lot of expertise, knowledge, and, and, um, and hardware also on the space station. How... You know, can you just take some of that off, bring it over to, to Star Lab? What's the plan there? First off, it's really important to say that we announced the George Washington Carver Science Park uh, a couple months ago, and we're getting it ready to operate it on the uh, International Space Station. So what's very important is that uh, with Star Lab, we have stepping stones. We're, we'll begin to get our customers going on the ISS, and then we'll migrate them over to, um, to the Star Lab. Um, so uh, we have a very, very uh, good world-class group of partners we're announcing in a couple of days. Uh, you will know all of them. And uh, forgive me, I just cannot announce now. And, um, but one of them we have announced, and that's the International Association of Science Parks in Spain. And um, I've been talking to them for about two years. They know the metrics of how you operate a science park. What are companies looking for around the world? And so to me, this is very, very powerful that we are going to be operating Star, uh, uh, star Lab uh, uh, with metrics known to companies, to metrics known to people who are doing basic and applied research development and cutting edge manufacturing. And, and so the business model to me is the core of our proposal because we want Star Lab to be as sustainable a business model as one can get uh, in a space station today. Um, in terms of moving hardware over, the Bishop Airlock is designed to be moved over, but I do have to say we haven't chosen the orbit yet. 
So we will spend the next few months deciding uh, and analyzing and talking to our existing and, and future customers. Do we wanna be with the ISS or is there a value in being in a different orbit that builds up the ecosystem and gives you certain advantages? And, and so we, we're gonna weigh all that and as uh, my colleagues like Marshall Smith who came in from NASA, as they weigh the trades as to, as to where we should be located. Yeah, that, that's a, a good point. Uh, maybe you can expand on that just a little bit. I mean, low Earth orbit is, uh, you know, getting uh, congested. It's been a word that's been used for years. And that's just really <laughs> starting now, you know, with the potential of tens of thousands of satellites in, 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 in different planes. So, uh, you know, are you going to choose, how are you going to determine, uh, you know, the orbit? Um. You know, I'm I'm 80% business person and maybe 20 percent. Uh, I don't okay. I don't know the right words to say, but but you'll see where I'm going with this, Mark. Um, it would be wonderful if we began to move outside of having a cluster of um, destinations all in the same place. There is value in having gas stations on every one corner or Starbucks on every one corner. There's also value for the ecosystem development being in different locations. Part of the reason we're at the current 50 something degrees uh, up is people like me who years ago fought to have it more uh, easier for the Russians. Where if we're no longer working with the Russians on transportation, maybe we wanna go back down to the lower uh, orbital inclinations of, of 20, was it 28 degrees or something uh, that allows for more efficient launches from Florida. So um, also, if you put a commercial space station in a different orbit than the ISS, do we then really push through orbital tugs? Do we begin to, you know, we pass over the earth at different times of the day. Is there value? Is there value in a polar um, space station? I, I, I doubt it, but we want to look at all these things and see from not only from our commercial viewpoint, but from that of the ecosystem development, uh, is there value in being in, an, in another location other than the space station? All right, so let's talk about business and policy question related to, to all of this, because um, the ISS, as we know, um, will someday come to an end, and it doesn't make any sense for government to go it alone, it's just too expensive, and, we've seen that commercial companies can bring expertise to the table to do things. So um, is it at this point a foregone conclusion, if you can even ever say that, that five years from now, six years from now, um, you know, we're gonna be talking about this space station is up and the ISS is getting ready to ramp down in a couple of years. Is that, is that going to actually happen? And now for the political side of the question, um, is Congress going to keep uh, providing, uh, you know, some incentive for the commercial companies? Well, you know, I testified on the Hill, uh, oh gosh, I would say two months ago uh, before the House Subcommittee on Science. And it was the first time in my career that I testified that there was an acknowledgement that there was a finite time to the ISS uh, even the uh, representatives uh, from Alabama, Marshall and uh, Houston, um, uh, even they acknowledge that we don't want a space station gap. Nobody wants a space station gap. We may have different reasons, 
I may not want a space station gap because we don't want to lose the ecosystem we've built up bipartisan over the last decade. Some of our elected representatives may not want a space station gap because you leave low earth orbit to the Chinese. So we come together shared that we don't want a space station gap. Um, so uh, in talking to friends uh, at Boeing and some of the other major uh, aerospace companies, there's an understanding that, that uh, you know, 2030 is a long time. And that's ISS is going to be really beyond aging. It will be aged by 2030. And I think we'll begin to see, if you, if you read the, the latest Inspector General report that came out a couple of weeks ago, they said the amount of time and the cost that the astronauts are spending on repairs is rising. And that's only going to continue uh, because it's now the hardware is 20 years old. There's cracks and you got to fix those cracks. And, and at some point it becomes clear that we need to move to multiple commercial platforms, perhaps in multiple orbits to go the next step in our utilization of low earth orbit. So I think we're at that uh, cusp where we recognize for different reasons, we all come together saying, it's time for an, uh, the new era of commercial, just as we had a decade ago, we opened the door to commercial space transportation. Now we're opening the door to commercial space destinations. I'm not sure you're gonna to wanna to answer this question, but I'm gonna throw it at you anyway. Um, do you care to comment on the other three companies or groups that were selected for, um, uh, for contracts, Axiom, uh, Northrop Grumman, uh, and of course the uh, Orbital uh, Reef? Um, are they, do you see the business cases for those are, are strong because a lot of them have um, lots of modules. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, first off, let me say I could not be more happy that there are multiple companies involved. Okay, this is essential. And I, I told the government over and over, if you, if you awarded just to Nanoracks, I will decline. Um, okay, you know, if you awarded just to Nanoracks, I will decline. You cannot have one company dependent for the United States on its future in low Earth orbit. So first off, as we learned with commercial cargo, I am delighted that there's multiple uh, companies uh, and, and they're great companies. And it's a good mix of entrepreneurial companies, larger aerospace with Northrop Grumman, um, large new space with Blue. So it's a, it's a very nice mix. Uh, Axiom is going to not be a free flyer for many, many years. They're attached to the ISS. It's, it's a very nice mix of different opportunities and different players. Um, we have got to make the case that you can have more than one uh, space commercial space station after ISS. We've got to figure out the market niches. Uh, maybe one goes to be a tourism. Maybe one goes to be uh, uh, you know, like we're going to focus on research and manufacturing. Maybe one is looking at professional astronauts. So I think if you, if you see the different markets that are emerging, and as I said a moment ago, you don't, I don't believe you want them all modules attached together. One can make the case, I believe, that we need multiple destinations serving different markets. Um, all right, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, a little bit of the transition from Nanoracks this year. Uh, we talked about it before, but I want to talk about a couple of the hires. And you already mentioned uh, both of the ones I, I wanted to talk about, but I thought maybe you'd, you'd um, elaborate a little bit more. Well, what did it mean to the company, first off, to bring Marshall Smith in to, to Nanorax? Oh, yeah, oh man, it meant a lot. I mean, uh, here's a gentleman who has uh, decades of experience in the complexities 
uh, of how you do big space uh, programs. Um, and uh, he's established our Huntsville, Alabama office. Uh, it's going to be key as we build up to meet the needs of uh, commercial space in the de you know, next decade. Um, and it sent a signal, I think, to the community that Nanorax uh, uh, was uh, changing and we were preparing to move beyond uh, you know, the uh, ISS utilization that we had been doing. Marshall's focus is not on our current business, it's on Starlab. And he has the expertise to lead that. And I think it gave NASA some uh, comfort. Uh, Marshall's in his, uh, what do you call his period, one year period where he can't communicate with NASA. Um, but they well understood that uh, uh, he's at Nanorax and uh, he'll be leading this effort in the years to come. And so that was very important. Uh, Amala Wilson is a known professional more in the uh, DOD business, uh, but she's skilled uh, at building up teams and scalability and, and uh, understanding uh, how to raise capital and she'll work with Voyager in that regard. Uh, we have some great hires that are going to be coming along as well. We're talking to um, people who are proven uh, experts in their areas. And so I'm very, very excited as to where we're going with that. This has to do with the transition as well. So tell me a little bit more, you know, now that you're in, and I remember we, we talked about this a few weeks ago when we saw each other in Halifax, um, your title is uh, President of International and Space Stations at Voyager Space, and you're also chairman of NanoRacks. So what is your role now? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, and, and when we were looking at doing tender, Dylan and I uh, sat down and, and he said, you know, you have a wonderful reputation on international. A lot of folks respect you for all the stuff you've done over the years. And, um, and I said, I'd be delighted to help build up Voyager uh, on the international front. And one of the areas that Dylan and I uh, are in agreement is that uh, being a leader in this industry does not mean approaching it from you know, the American perspective or the French perspective or the European or the Russian. Uh, and so we wanna be uh, involved internationally. And I look forward to working, uh, you know, I was in Canada a few weeks ago with Maritime Launch and uh, I look forward to really um, building up Voyager and its portfolio of companies on an international level. I'll be spending a lot of time in the Middle East, uh, in Europe, and so that's, that's wonderful. But I went uh, about a couple of weeks after we settled on president of international, I went back to Dylan and I said, and space stations. And uh, he thought for a moment and said, yes, of course. And, and the reason for that is my entire career has been space stations. And I was convinced then that we would be involved in, in space stations going forward. And I'm no longer involved. I won't be involved in the day to day. Um, but again, like on the international, I want to help steer. What is Starlab? Where is it going? Who are the strategic partners? What does it represent? Uh, Dylan and I wanted to represent you know, something aspirational because that's what we feel about a destination. And it's easy to say, oh, I want it to be aspirational, just like everybody now wants to democratize space. Well, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And, and it's also hard to be aspirational. It takes day in, day out, understanding who your partners are, uh, what's the message you deliver, and you have to feel it. And so Dylan very kindly said uh, that he would be very pleased to have me lead for Voyager, uh, what we're doing in space stations and how we're getting there. And so that's, that's what that's about. And in developing those relationships, 
you're obviously going after uh, commercial opportunities, but there's also the existing partners on the International Space Station. So do you see them going to multiple stations or just one station? You know, you've got JAXA, you've got the European Space Agency, and of course you've got Canada, I mean, and the Russians. I mean, are they going to uh, become partners in, in, let's say there's two commercial government space stations that get built in the next 10 years, within the next 10 years? Well, bite your tongue on government space stations, okay? <laughs> so- uh, Well, I, I had to throw in the word government in there. Well, I'm not sure why, because uh, in our case, speaking for us, and I know speaking for everyone else, the overwhelming majority of capital is coming from the private sector. NASA is an important and beloved customer, one of many, but- uh, you All right, so let me rephrase it. Government as a customer. Yes, yes, very important to have that stamp of uh, approval from NASA. Um, we will have to see. Um, there are two types of uh, space agencies that we're engaged in. One is the existing ISS partners, as you say. They're going to be the slowest. And it could come to hurt them, but they're going to be the slowest. Why? Because they're already engaged. They're already spending their taxpayers' money on the International Space Station. But the other space agencies that are not part of ISS are free to begin to plan, to work with, let's say, nanoracks on the ISS and then go over to Starlab. It's a very interesting situation. If you're, if you're a space agency on ISS now, you say, well, how much longer do I want to uh, fund the ISS? Wait, I want to get good space on one of these private, or two of these private stations. I want to make sure that jobs continue for the next 15 years. And so they, they have a very delicate and very difficult uh, 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 situation over the next two, three years to make sure that their job uh, uh, base, that their skill set remains in place and yet they're, they're not forced to spend more money on LEO when we believe we can help them achieve what they need and spend less. Does that make sense? Interesting. Yeah, and, and the reason sort of I, I bring this up is uh, I'll do it from the Canadian perspective because it's a perspective I know quite well. Uh, you know, the Canadian Space Agency, they see going forward, one of the big things that they can do is health in space. And so they're going to need a platform and they're going to need a platform beyond uh, the International Space Station. Uh, they are going to do the Lunar Gateway, but, you know, once the International Space Station is, is gone, they're going to need some place to go. So, And here's a chance, uh, you know, we're, we're very proud of Nanoracks. Uh, I'm no longer the CEO, but Nanoracks is very proud that uh, they have the Canadian Space Agency as a customer. Nanorax is deploying satellites across all the provinces, and we're very pleased by that. Um, but look, what, what you just said, there are so many rules and so many stipulations for Canada to do its programs on the International Space Station. They have a certain amount of mass, they have a certain up mass, they have a certain amount of uh, resources. Now they can enter into um, uh, uh, discussions with, say, Nanorax uh, and say, here's what we want, here's what we need. Okay, and we'll give you you know, 60% of our business here, if you design this and you design it in Canada and you do this here, and then they go to uh, Blue Origin, they say, and we'll give you 40% of our business because we like this if you'll design here. It's a wonderful opportunity. And, and, uh, and so uh, I think that what our message to the Canadian Space Agency and others is um, you can have more a la carte now. You can go, to, you can go to, the, to the restaurant of space stations and get exactly what you need and get it more efficiently. Okay, so last question or so. Um, 
NanoRacks is going to have its uh, hands full with uh, StarLab. Um, but as I've seen over the years, NanoRacks every couple of years comes out with something new and exciting. <laughs> are you still going to be doing something? Uh, are there, is there anything else in the, in the works right now that we don't know about that's, that NanoRacks wants to do well, they, that hasn't been announced? <laughs> there's two answers to that. Number one, uh, there's a couple of answers. Number one, not for me anymore. It's up for Amala Wilson. Uh, number two, um, I do believe the uh, NanoRacks will has to be more focused on the extraordinary challenge and opportunity that it has with uh, um, StarLab. And as a member of the board, as you said, you know, we want uh, everybody focused on this extraordinary opportunity. It's going to be a heck of a challenge. Uh, we're a lot smaller than the uh, blue team. Uh, we're pleased with that. We think it makes us more cost efficient, makes us more agile. So um, in one answer is no, you won't see the diversity of NanoRacks going forward is my guess. Having said that, there are a couple of things that I left on my way out the door and there may be some announcements that are very cool. And, uh, and, uh, but after that, boy, they got to focus on the uh, things, uh, the opportunities on the table. All right, so last question on, on some of the old stuff, uh, even though it's not old, it's only a year old. Uh, just to revisit from last year, which is how are things going with the, the Space Farming Center that uh, project? Near and dear to my heart, uh, StarLab Oasis has just hired its first researchers, one from Canada and one from uh, the United States. These are uh, people who just researchers who just got their uh, uh, PhDs in uh, space-based uh, agriculture, probably thought that most of their career would be in a university, academic, or government setting, and we've given them the chance, and they've accepted to make history by uh, being in a commercial setting. So we're just looking at, we have our first two researchers. We're looking at, so we should announce soon, uh, and I'm on the board of that as well, so I can say we. Uh, we're looking at um, uh, announcing uh, who our laboratory partners are in the uh, Abu Dhabi, and uh, uh, we're beginning the first conversations with customers and partners. So it's slow. It's slow. We've been, management's been preoccupied by a number of things. Um, but uh, Star Lab Oasis is moving along. I'm terribly excited by it. And I think it's a new commercial market uh, that's going to grow. All right. So last question, full circle conversation a few years ago, talking about expanding NanoRacks, um, looking at going public. Um, now you've done the deal with Voyager. Voyager is going to do a traditional uh, initial public offering sometime in the first half of next year. Um, did Voyager and yourself consider at one point doing what a lot of other space companies seem to be doing these days, which is a special purpose acquisition company as opposed to uh, what you're doing now? Um Dylan and Voyager was under a great deal of pressure to consider, and they have fiduciary responsibility to consider everything and what brings the shareholders the most value. So I know that Voyager entertained offers from uh, multiple uh, SPAC um, or, um, investors. Um, and uh, I, I believe the board made a decision that and it was the best value. It was prudent to go forward with traditional. Um, it's taking Voyager a little bit longer. 
I can tell you that JP Morgan is investigating every contract, every forward statement, and that's the value you want with the traditional uh, uh, public offering. You see some of these prices on space SPACs today as we speak. The, you know, I'm, I'm so disappointed because they're all friends of mine. Uh, and and um, I worry about what it means for the community for attracting investors uh, in the future. Uh, you talk about patient capital, it doesn't seem to be there with the SPACs. They're not bound by, by uh, forward statements. They can say whatever the heck they want. Um, and so I understand JP Morgan has been into every, uh, every contract, everything, making sure everything we say is legitimate. Um, gosh, it costs more, it takes longer, but I think that's the way to go. And I think it's, it's healthy for the community to have companies taking, a more tra taking the traditional approach to give the confidence to the investor community. Yeah, it seems to me everything I've heard in the last year and a half or so has been Spock, Spock, Spock. When was the last time when we had a traditional space IPO? You know, I might have to say it might have been Canadian. Was it uh, MDA? Well, that's true. That's true. That's true. MDA did do that. And of course, uh, Telesat just uh, went public as well. Yeah. Uh, another now. Right. See, so, so leave it to you Canadians to keep, to keep the, the, <laughs> the, the straight and narrow. Um, but, but Traditional, conservative. Right. Well, and it's the right way to because, go because, I mean, it's so intoxicating to go down. You know, there's a lot of reasons for it. It's fast. You don't have to go into a silent period. Um, it's great for management. But, uh, you know, Dylan and uh, Matt, the co-founders of Voyager, really understand what they're doing. And um, they feel it's best for their shareholders and for the community. So, And at the end of the day, when it comes time to, to, to start doing your quarterly earnings reports, all that information is public. So, uh, you know, if you've gone the traditional route, um, you know, there'll be less surprises if there are any surprises because, you know, the investors will know going into it what, what's happened. Exactly. That's exactly correct. We're seeing the prices uh, today as we speak down for a lot of friends of mine, 5%, 7%, you know, and, and each day, I mean, because they're not able to make their projections. Uh, so we'll see. This is a long game. I think uh, most of them will stabilize. Uh, and this is a wonderful moment in our community with so much private capital being tapped. Uh, I would wager, I may have said this the last time I was on, that there's probably more discretionary private capital for space now than there is a government, discretionary. Okay, so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating time. And I think the key there is it's a long game. It's a long and game. And space stations is a long game as well. It's all part of a, a growing uh, uh, ecosystem. All right, Jeff. Uh, Thank you for being on the Space Cube podcast. Hopefully, maybe after Thanksgiving uh, next year. Uh, goodness, I don't know how we could top this in terms of all the different things that have happened in the last year, but uh, maybe we'll catch up uh, then for the podcast. Let's hope so. And I'd, I'd love to come back on and let you guys know how we're doing. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. As a reminder, Space Q has two other podcasts in our network, Terranauts, hosted by industry veteran Ian Christie, which is now in season three, and they just launched Earth and Space podcast focused on how we use space to benefit us in our everyday lives, including climate change, agriculture, weather, etc. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. If you use Apple Podcasts, it would really help us if you wrote a review 
on whichever podcast you listen to.